you could take a trip to Paris from your desk. And that's cool, but I'd much rather take a trip to some place that I can't even imagine myself. It's kind of like watching a tiger on TV versus having a tiger let loose in your living room. What brought you back to game design after all that? VR, of course. Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology for the arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, William Gibson was right, the Doru is coming to our shores. Also, EA's in a jam, Call of Duty turns out to be real, and we take some time for a bit of well-deserved bloating. Plus, we visited a Toronto virtual reality meetup and talked about the Oculus Connect. But first, we talked to E. McNeil about Gear VR and Darknet. E. McNeil, better known by his friends as E, is one of the original backers of the Oculus Rift. He was among the more than 9,000 people who donated money to Oculus back in 2012. It's money that helped Oculus build the first developer kit, then the second, and eventually garner enough reputation that they were bought by Facebook. But going back to 2013, when E. tried the Oculus for the first time, he had mild expectations. Um, it was... Really nice in that it you know finally satisfied my curiosity about it. I had read a whole lot um, you know before actually going to try it out, and I think I'd gotten a little overhyped, and I simultaneously knew I was overhyped, and so it was this terrible you know recursive set of expectations and trying to moderate my own expectations, etc. Um, so you know when I finally put it on, it, it pretty much was on par with what I was hoping for. Like, I knew there were limitations. I knew about the screen door effect and the limited resolution and how there was a little bit of motion blur. Um, But it was still very cool. And, you know, the 3D effect really worked. And you could, you know, look all the way around and never find an edge to the screen. Like, the the core cool parts of the experience were definitely there. But it impressed him enough that he became part of a VR game jam, which tasked designers to create a virtual reality game in three weeks. So he hustled and created a game he called CS. I, I'd actually just finished up a game for another piece of kickstarted hardware, the Ouya. And, um, you know, I'd sort of put that behind me and was trying to figure out what my, ne- what my next project would be. And I heard about this game jam because Oculus was sponsoring it in collaboration with IndieCade, which is a uh, L.A.-based annual game expo that features a lot of really cool, small, experimental games. And so, again, you know, Oculus was teaming up with people who I really respected, just like they did in the original Kickstarter. And it was, you know, immediately seemed like a good idea to me. Like, here I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I had some time to spare. And they were announcing this, uh, you know, three-week game jam. It was really, like, the perfect setting for me to jump into Oculus Rift development. And, you know, my dev kit had just arrived, like, a month previous. CS got first place, and E got a free trip to a game convention, $10,000, and a day to spend with the designers at Oculus. And it eventually became the game E's working on now, Darknet. I think it was successful because it, it kind of used a structure of interaction that was very comfortable to use with the early development kit. It was mostly pretty stationary, but looking around a lot. And there was a lot of forward and backward movement, which is kind of the sweet spot, I think, for something that's fun in VR, where you kind of feel it, but it doesn't make you feel ill. And so um, I was trying to build like a strategy game within that. And I, you know, I started going along that road and I think did okay, considering that it was a three week deadline. But, you know, the game was not very strategically sound um, at that point. But I, I think it, you know, kind of... Um, captured a lot of people's imagination. Like, it showed how you could do a strategy game in VR and do something new that, you know, kind of made good use of the medium. Um, And so it got some good early attention and, yeah, ended up actually winning the jam. So for those who have never tried it, what is Darknet? Darknet is a cyberpunk hacking game. So it's casting you as, like, a hacker who's going inside this, you know, neon wireframe computer network. It's kind of like the you know, 80s cyberpunk vision of what cyberspace looked like. And um, you sort of zoom inside this computer network and there's all these different nodes of a network that are connected to each other in different ways. And you can, you know, fire viruses and things at them to weaken them or capture them and, you know, steal money. Um, You can zoom inside any one of them and you get this randomly generated puzzle and solving that represents like manually hacking one of the nodes. Um, And then... Your goal is to kind of work your way up through the levels of security within a time limit to capture the target data um, before your signal gets traced. 
It's set to be one of the launch games for the Oculus Rift. But an Oculus Rift for the masses seems to be a few years off. You'll need a powerful PC, 3D sound, great frame rate, and Oculus isn't all the way there yet. Instead, we get the Samsung Gear VR. The Gear VR is another headset created by Oculus for the Samsung Galaxy Note 4. Supposedly, you'll slide the phone into the headset, strap it to your face, and boom, virtual reality. And Darknet will be one of the first games ready for... This kind of stems from the VR jam that we talked about earlier, where because of that, I got to meet some people at Oculus and uh, stay in contact with them. And so when they started you know, reaching out to developers for Gear VR, this like early mobile VR solution, I was lucky enough that, you know, to be one of the people that they contacted. It was convincing enough, even then, even at that early stage, that I decided that this was something I wanted to do. So what are the advantages of kind of having uh, VR on a mobile platform as opposed to just the massive headset? Well, the biggest, like, most obvious advantage is simply the fact that there are no wires tethering you to the computer. So, you know, it's actually really comfortable to, like, sit in a swivel chair and wear this thing and just, you know, spin around and here you are in this world. Like, when you move from PC to mobile, you expect to have to make a lot of sacrifices, like lower resolution or just, you know, more latency, things like that. And there have been, like, other mobile VR solutions before this that, you know, evince those sacrifices. And Oculus has been working on those things really hard and surprisingly have made this experience really surprisingly high quality. So they have an extremely high resolution screen. They've reduced the latency of the the experience a lot. And the end result is that um, the current version of Gear VR is actually better than anything that you can do on PC in many ways. There's a couple things that it can't do, like uh, positional tracking, like, you know, moving your head side to side or forward and backward. But... In most other ways, it's, you know, it doesn't feel like you're, uh, you're downgrading at all. It feels like you know, this is a cheaper experience than buying a headset and an entire gaming computer. Um, and you're getting this you know, still very fantastic uh, VR experience. But trading out the bulky Oculus Rift for a phone has its drawbacks. Even if the Oculus Rift happens to use the exact same screen as the Galaxy Notes. Like the two, two big downsides are positional tracking which is because you can't have like an external camera like the PC version can have, and the performance concerns. The performance thing, though, I don't see that as like a, you know, the death knell of mobile VR or anything like that, because it's something that developers can work around. So my game from the very start was going to be pretty stylized and uh, abstract and, you know, and, and pretty simple. And when I decided to go to mobile... That I didn't have to like cut a lot of features or anything like that. It, there wasn't anything that I had to remove due to performance concerns. It just meant that I had to spend a couple of weeks optimizing the game and like actually doing it the right way to make sure that it could run on the mobile hardware. They also like there's some advantages to uh, optimizing for mobile as opposed to PC, where like with Gear VR we only have to develop for a single piece of hardware, a single device, as opposed to a very wide range of configurations that people can have on their home computers. So it's almost, like, more straightforward in some ways. So, you know, obviously you're dealing with a lot less horsepower, but I think if people have that in mind from the beginning or are working on more stylized games, it just means that they have to put a little bit more effort into it. It doesn't really mean that you're going to have to really scale back on, you know, what game you're making. And and I think that's less true for, like, bigger AAA games, you know. Something like Eve Valkyrie, which is, like, this really pretty-looking space shooter that's probably not going to be running on a phone anytime soon. But folks like me, who are just like small indie studios, can definitely get games working really well on mobile. But the technology is still early, and E is ready to accept a few caveats. In general, pay attention to the medium's uh, unique strengths and weaknesses. Like, I think some people had a particular vision of what they wanted VR to be, and pursued that a little too closely, regardless of sort of how well it, it really worked. You know, I think that it's kind of unfortunate. There's a lot of experiences like, you know, first-person shooters and things like that that just haven't translated very well so far. And I just think it's important for people jumping into VR development to, like, pay attention to what the, the medium is telling you. You know, like, try to look at what the new things you can do in VR are and try to look at what the, the medium is kind of pushing you away from and take all that into account. I think that's the better approach rather than having a particular idea in mind and trying to like bend VR to fit your preconceptions. What I'm really interested in is experiencing worlds that are completely unrealistic. 
things that are sort of pulled out of fantasy. You know, people, a lot of people talk about doing,、um, you know, convincing recreations of our own world. So, like, you could take a trip to Paris or something from your desk. And that's cool, but I'd much rather take a trip to, you know, someplace that I can't even imagine myself, that I could not visit in the real world. And, you know, we, could, we can build that sort of thing in video game worlds. And this is like an opportunity to actually put ourselves within that. All right, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. That was a fascinating、uh, conversation. Yeah, it's good talking to you. E. McNeil is a creator of Darknet and a game designer based in San Diego. You can find a link to Darknet on our site or visit darknetgame.com. From one virtual reality to another is the shockingly popular Hatsune Miku. She's a Japanese virtual music star. Miku is actually part of a series of programs called Vocaloids. They're music synthesizers that let you add a singer to a song by programming the words, pitch, and rhythm. And since it's Japan, they have a cute teenage mascot, hence the virtual idol. Hatsune Miku, who is again not a real person, is now so popular worldwide that she recently made an appearance on the David Letterman show. As part of an art exhibit going on in New York、uh, next week, Miku made an appearance on the David Letterman show doing what exactly? She was singing and dancing.、Um, it's really, okay, so Miku does concerts,、right. and it feels really weird to be discussing this computer program by a first personal name. <laughs>、um, it is really strange. I've never had to do this out loud before.、Uh, I do this in private all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I talk to my, I talk to my wife, though. <laughs> Um, one has to wonder how Letterman's audience of American Revolution veterans took to the anime eyed turquoise haired hologram dancing around on stage.、Uh, Letterman himself seemed mostly confused by the ordeal. He actually, at the end of it, walked up to Miku, started clapping kind of towards her vaguely, and said, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I don't know much. if he wanted to talk to her or、Thank、what. You. <laughs> you know, take her up for, for lunch. I don't know. What, what do Hollywood types do? Well,、too? I mean, just like, invite her over to the couch and like, lean over and like, laugh at nothing when it, comes to, <laughs> when it fades away to commercial. You know, something like that. The, the greatest thing David Letterman has ever done is that, and I'm not a person who watches the David Letterman show or late night talk shows in general, but there's a really great supercut on CBC Music about how every time there's a band on the David Letterman show, he will always walk up to the drummer and say, Those are your drums? <laughs> every time. I, this must have been very hard for him to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Are those your hologram generators? Well, it, Miku performing live isn't technically a hologram. The image is rear projected onto a high resolution, tra- semi transparent screen.、Um, basically, it's a video that looks three dimensional from far away. Because it's projected onto a screen. And, right.、No. And it's also projected at mul- like multi- it's projected at multiple angles. So, from any way you look at it, you're looking at the right. Like, if you were to look at it from the side, you don't just see the front of, front of Miku, like the people from the front of you, you see her side.、Yeah. It is as if it is an object in space, but obviously not. The technology is pretty impressive and could be used for cooler things than confusing David Letterman with an anime bait, but hey, we live in the world- weirdest of all possible futures. One of the reasons for popularity is that since online composers could add her to any song, she began exhibiting a huge range. And fan artists often added her to videos or images that were meant to go with the song. So all of a sudden, she has CDs, comics, anime, games, even live concerts、uh, in Japan and LA, and I think coming up in New York as part of this exhibit. And I think she's, th- she's been set for something in Toronto. I mean, it's not like. Yeah, a, probably. A, Hatsune Miku has been by Anime North at least once. Has she? I think it's. It, I don't know how to refer yeah, it's to a computer. Miku. It's a computer program. Like, it's not even. It doesn't have. It's not even like. She doesn't even, even gain, AI. She hasn't、like, gained sentience. Yeah, no, it's a. She's a picture. How do they even gather the CDs? Like, is it just a, is it the company behind it that's been doing? Yeah, because the, they technically own the rights to her. Though you have a sub license, right? So you can make her your singer just on regular CDs. Right. But everything eventually makes more money for.、Um, Designers. I, I can't remember the, the name, the Vocaloid company.、Uh, eventually, Maywell makes money for them because that raised their popularity and that means more license fees, et cetera, et cetera.、Um, I really can't wait for Ray Toei and Sharon Apple to perform their long awaited duet on、uh, Jimmy Fallon next month. It's going to be great. For those of you who don't read William Gibson and haven't watched Macross <laughs> Plus, I apologize. Here is a fart noise. <laughs> well, on the opposite end of the fart noise is Vib Ribbon. Um, <laughs> which 
I'm, I'm just going to say out there, we, we did it. We did it. This yeah. is us. We're going to, you can't see it. There's a mission accomplished banner on the back of the studio. It's really, it's something beautiful. We kind of fished it out of the trash uh, next to the White House, but. It, <laughs> yeah, we dug into the White House's trash and then chiseled the remains into stone and have it up in our studio here. Mm-hmm. Um, after Sony's absolutely shameful teasing of Vibribbon at their E3 press conference, many were up in arms. How dare they trick us so? How dare they mislead us? Why mention the perfect game so many times and yet have no intentions of releasing it? How dare you, Sony? But, well, this week at Built to Play, we would like to take the credit for righting a wrong. We would like to take credit for being the shining beacon of the game industry and the mighty force that moves its mounds. For this week, Sony released Vibribbon on the PSN store, and it's all thanks to us. Yeah, uh, so... If you saw the announcement for this game, which, by the way, we should explain, is a is a rhythm game released on the PlayStation 1 in 1999, only in Japan and Europe. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a music game, kind of like Amplitude, kind of like that bunch, but it's more right. of a platformer. It sort of operates, if you play the Bitrip Runner games, it works a lot like those. It is an auto runner. You are hitting different buttons on the PS1 controller to get around obstacles, but these obstacles are generated based on the music of the level you're in. And you can generate, you can put in music in the game by putting in audio CDs into your PS1. Although the original soundtrack is pretty good. The original soundtrack is fantastic too. But yeah, so it, it is all based on music and it has, it generates levels based on music you put into it. And the reason we're taking credit is because if you look at that press release, um, SCEA president Sean Layden took to the PlayStation blog to actually apologize, and in it, he used a collection of angry tweets and all this other stuff. From industry luminaries. Yeah, yeah. And they framed... A beautiful headline for a Storify from our own website, written by Mr. Armonic Bali. <laughs> Compiled full of tweets of uh, Dan Rosen's great E3 coverage. Um, Sony, where are you hiding Vidbribbon? I think was the general that was, tone. That was a general tone. There was a dig at EA in there yeah. somewhere. Yeah, shots fired. Um, something about Aisha Tyler. And... Um, then after directly below that, uh, Sean Layden uh, took to, uh, to took to apologize, saying it was not my intention to rub salt in the vib ribbon wound, but to express my admiration for it at the genre busting title it is and was. My mistake was that I assumed that everybody who had been around in the original PlayStation era would have their chance to play the game. I'd forgotten that the American gamer was effectively denied the opportunity. To mention it at E3 was to delight some and squirt lemons in the eyes of others. For this, I apologize. It was not my intent to dangle the delight of Vibri in front of those who longed for but could not have. And um, as we were on that thing, I believe we made Vibribbon happen. Yeah, no. We, we directly influenced uh, Mr. Sean Layden, and it is us and only us. Yeah. We are unto gods. Um, at this point, I really feel like we should start making some more requests. Like, we really have this power now. <laughs> I think we should start asking for things. Personally, I'd really love it if Atlas put out Cubivore somewhere, their um, GameCube <laughs> game, wherein there's a button you could make poops happen. Uh, or I'd like it even more if Sony could make a new Jumping Flash, a next-gen Jumping Flash, or a new Parappa. The sky's the limit. What would you like? <laughs> You're sitting on Santa's lap, the game, game industry Santa, and you're looking at his dead, cold, beady eyes, and you can have anything. Well, first I would like, like Santa to stop looking at me. That's pretty creepy, Santa. Um, I would also, I would, I don't know, man. I, the game I want from Sony's cold, hard hands is for them to revive the Sega Gogo. And Sega Gaga? Sega Gaga, sorry. Mm-hmm. You want and, Sony Oni? Yeah, yeah, I want Sony Oni just for... Uh... Sony Oni would be a pretty good pun in Japanese, too. It's like the Sony demons who run Sony. Yeah, exactly. I want that game. I want Sony, get down to... I want a Sean Layton simulator. I want to play as Sean Layton. <laughs> I want to... Well, no, you want to play as Parappa the Rapper, <laughs> who is now like a peon employee at Sony, who has to work his way back up to being the president of Sony and get a new Parappa game made. And on his way, he encounters other forgotten Sony characters, like Sir Daniel Fortescue and uh, Sweet Tooth and I'm trying to think of other ones the, the Rabbit from Jumping Flash and Vibri from Vibribbon and you work your way back up you start in a Sony retail store and then you eventually become a developer etc 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 until you've conquered Sony from within or I don't know they could just make like Shadow of the Colossus 2 or The Last Guardian they you could know make you know yeah, what yeah. that's a request The Last Guardian, Guardian. Yeah. let's just hey <laughs> if we can wish for impossible things we wish for the most impossible thing of all well, so long as we're talking about impossibilities, um, it looks like Call of Duty, uh, 
believes that it has, it has come to life. Yeah. Uh, Dave Anthony, a former Treyarch employee and the director of Call of Duty Black Ops and COD Blops 2 Return of the Blops, recently gave his inauguration speech at the Atlantic Council, a think tank a think tank he was asked to join in September. Anthony's focus in the think tank, think tank, I can't pronounce that word, I can pronounce COD Blops all day, but I can't do think tank, <laughs> is to parlay his experience working in games about modern warfare to do research on future warfare, which may seem like it's a little bit out of his depth. His claim is that as an artist, he's trained to think creative and to blow apart traditional thinking. This helped because, according to him, the future of warfare won't be traditional warfare, but rather individual small terrorist attacks on American soil, soft targets. Anthony believes that by having the conversation about future terrorism with a varied group of people, the government can get more done by than talking to the usual experts. Presumably, he is one of those people. Uh, he mentioned in his speech that when plotting Cod Blops 2 Legend of Bloppy's Gold, he put screenwriter David Goyer, futurist Peter Single, Singer, and a SEAL Team 6 member in a room and had them bounce off each other. Quote, I've seen magic come out of those meetings, and I wish I could see that in Washington. One of the endings of that game involves the White House burning down, so I'm pretty sure those guys aren't really thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, so Call of Duty has never been realistic. I mean, the, the closest it's been to realistic is Modern Warfare 1 or mm. Call of Duty 4, whatever you want to call that game. It's the, um, that was the closest they got to, to realism. There was, I mean, they, they, that game ends with the launch of a nuclear bomb and you take more damage and have regenerating health. So I don't think it's really all that realistic. But if we're talking about games where things could actually happen, that's probably the closest they've ever gotten. Right. Modern Warfare 2 had the White House exploding and... Modern Warfare 3 had you had Russia invading all of Europe at once. So I'm pretty sure that they These these guys aren't really in the realm of realistic credible threats. To be fair, he is working on Black Ops which was the I don't know if that was realistic, but it was more entertaining. Sure. Like, what are the numbers? What do the numbers mean? That wasn't there a Cold War two in Black Ops two? Yes, there was. Cold, sorry, I had to call. It, I had to think of another word for Blops for Blops two. Uh, Blops two, Revenge of the Blops. Um, but yeah, the it's it's one of the things like I I don't know if he's wrong or right about the terrorism on small soft targets thing. I'm really not yeah. the expert in that field. But here's where it gets a little bit weird. He, Anthony paused the idea of having an armed guard at U.S. schools, sort of like an air marshal, a plane's clothes officer with a weapon who would be trained in case of a terrorist attack. This would be an undoubtedly unpopular move among the American people, but Anthony has another solution for that, drawn from his days as a game developer. Quote, when we have a new product that has elements we're not sure how people will respond to, we market it. We market it as much as we can so that whenever people, li whether people like it or not, we essentially brainwash them into liking it before it actually comes out. When you have decided to make these changes, you have a marketing campaign to introduce them before it is forced upon you. Um, my, the best quote, though, out of the bunch is, I look at the U.S. military and government, ironically, as having some of the very same problems as what the Call of Duty franchise has, he said. We are both on top of our game, and we are both the best in the world at what we do. We both have enemies who are trying to take us down at any possible opportunities, but the difference is... We know how to react to that. So Call of Duty, the American military, and Wolverine are basically <laughs> the same thing. I, this is such a crazy statement, but it, I mean, to be fair, the government kind of does this already. Just a little, like, it's not like the government is alien to the concept of advertising. Before any decision happens, polls are put in the field, attack ads are put together, speeches are made. The government isn't unpopular because they have bad advertising. It's because they're an all-powerful entity tasked with making impossible choices that are bound to be unpopular. Like, it's it's not a secret that the government has to be unpopular. Yeah, for instance, um, they recently put out a... They recently put out a, uh, a help video in case you're thinking of joining ISIS. So they had like a little, they had a little parody video of, "Hey, do you want to join ISIS? Well, here's how you, here's how you murder lots of Muslims." <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it didn't go quite over well with a lot of people. I don't think that people saw it as, "Oh, well, now that I've been advertised to, I guess I don't want to join a terrorist group mm -hmm. bent on world destruction." Um, People are usually pretty aware that they're being advertised to when it comes to a political thing. They're, people are kind of immediately cynical there. Video games are a little bit different. I think people are more willing to, to just accept things at face value. There's um, also the fact that Call of Duty is one audience. Like right. It's like it's not like Call of Duty doesn't have to you're appeal to... You're not convincing to, new people. Or, and it's like you're not trying to convince 40-year-old uh, moms, right? Mm -hmm. Like 40-year-old moms are not looking at Call of Duty and saying, oh, that new map pack, that looks... those." 
th- those are going to really change the balance of these <laughs> these weapons. But I, you know, I can accept this. They they don't. The same ad can't apply they, to the Call of Duty consumer, the forty year old mom, the eight year you know the eighteen year old girl, the whatever. It's not going to happen the same way that a Call of Duty ad can convince those people because it's only one kind of person. A yep. government ad has to reach everybody. Yeah, you'd also have to question the legitimacy of someone who wants to be totally open about the fact that he wants to brainwash people. A little bit super villainous. <laughs> um, then again, I imagine that's why every that's what every large business and government wants to do. It's probably easier to get things done when they when everybody agrees with you. They just don't admit it. Yeah. So the, the, I feel like gamifying things might be a smart addition to the whole think tank working on the government policy. I mean, the thing is, gamification has been has been slowly creeping into all aspects of life. There's mm-hmm. things in education. There's things in um, the way just getting your license. Um, as these things go on, the, the games are going to slowly creep into more of the world around us just as ways of inspiring people or at the very least adding some motivation to actually doing your taxes. Yeah. The... But I don't think that it's going to necessarily... The idea that you could then use games to brainwash people seems like a very negative outcome. Right, uh, and it also feels like it's losing the whole point of it. Um, it's You know, gamification can interact can be interactive and foster debate. Aggressive advertising of unpopular opinions already exists. You sort of do just have to convince people sometimes. Yeah. It's not really a brainwashing deal all the time. Um, then again, I personally have been watching The West Wing for the last couple of weeks, so I am like 10 times more doe-eyed, idealist, pinko, commie, fuzzy liberal than I usually am, and I'm pretty <laughs> much on that side already. So I may be just like instantly like, no, how dare you? <laughs> when it comes to Call of Duty, I feel like the, the I feel like those guys are just getting too far ahead of themselves when they deal with the difference between fiction and reality. Mm-hmm. It's just, I yes, you're getting these people in a room to speculate, but what you're speculating on is what works for fiction, right? The idea of like, you know what, I'm sure people have been talking about cyber attacks, the idea of like, hey, people are going to hack into our power plants for decades. That's, and that might not even be fiction. According to things like Stuxnet, that's happened. The United States government, probably with the help of Israel, has um, put together a virus that only attacked um, Iran's nuclear plants. But the, um, what was it, when it... That stuff doesn't necessarily apply on a much broader scale. Yeah, like, it doesn't really apply to pushing armed guards in schools. And you gotta like this guy may have worked on on Black Ops, which are mostly I mean they're technically games about spies to some extent, but mm-hmm. I mean th- they're spies who kill hundreds and hundreds of people, so probably not that great at their jobs. Yeah, it's it's again I don't really know. I'm not 100% sure why this guy was asked to be put in this think tank. I think there's a lot of things he could say about gamifying things and mechanical things he could definitely help to policy. But actually influencing policy and advertising doesn't seem like his bag. It doesn't seem like he has the expertise there. Um, Especially because I believe the Atlantic, uh, what was it, the, I can't remember the name of the place, the... um, the, a publication? No, no. The uh, the think tank, the Atlantic Council, yes, is the home of pe- was was once the home of people like Henry Kissinger and Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, he may he may not fit in quite with that crowd. Um, although I do think he's right wing enough. No. Anyway. Yep. Um, Speaking of left wing, um, so long as you're in the left wing of a football field, basketball field, or whatever, um. EA Tiburon has some news for you. Yes, EA Tiburon, the core studio that puts together the majority of EA sports games, is getting all fired up for a game jam. To celebrate the studio's 20th anniversary, the House of Madden, PGA Tour, and NBA Live is giving its developers some time off to between projects to make whatever they feel like. The studio has an action time policy where an employee not currently in a project can request two weeks of time to develop a new idea. Um, sort of a lot. I think a lot of games have that. Companies have that. I know Google has it. I know actually Game Freak, the Pokemon guys, have that. Weirdly yeah. enough, but there. This is basically this is basically a mandatory two weeks for everybody. With hey guys, please come up with something new. <laughs> uh, Tiburon's 800 employees used to work on a pretty wide slate of games, but that is now dwindled to just golf, which took a year off last year. The perennially troubled NBA Live franchise and Madden, which will never ever die and never ever change. So I mean NBA. <laughs> Golf was bad last year. Mm-hmm. NBA Live was was notoriously bad last year. It's also notoriously bad this year, isn't it? Was it the face scanning thing? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, NBA Live continues to not learn any of its lessons and be a game that is inferior to whatever 2K is, upper, is, is making. Um, when it comes to these, I feel like 
they work on such a schedule that it might be nice for the developers or designers or employees in general there to get a chance to, you know, breathe a little instead they, of like, what are the newest stats? Did Peyton Manning punch a guy? They like, have made other games in the past. NFL, the 2012 NFL Blitz was their last spin-off title, uh, but they've also made uh, MechWarrior 3050 from before they were in EA Studio and uh, my, one of my favorite DS games ever, Henry Hatsworth and the Puzzling Adventure. That was that was the, that was Tiburon? that was the, that was an of a Tiburon, and then those people left and made their own company, right? Uh, who made Monster Tail, which is another great game, and and um, was it uh, Epic Mickey: The Power of Illusion, the DS, the right. 3DS game, which is not a good game, unfortunately. <laughs> well, but uh, Henry Hasworth, great, and more stuff like that out of these guys, please. So maybe they'll have an idea of how to break the, <laughs> unbreak their basketball games. Um, Mike Young, the creative director of Madden Games, has told the Orlando Sentinel that he and his team have been working on their game in his garage every day um, since past midnight. Um, there's, of course, no guarantee that the winner of the jam will be anything we see, but. We can dream. But we can't dream about Mutant League football because even though it's owned by EA, it technically counts as competition with Madden, even though it's about orcs and <laughs> giants and gnomes. So so I guess um, let's, let's get weirder, right? Let's get a little bit weirder. I'm thinking Final Fantasy football. Uh, I'm thinking a gritty reboot of Mule. I'm thinking a reboot, or just a reboot game based on this popular Canadian children's cartoon from the 90s. I'm thinking of a game that reboots the concept of football. I want the football. <laughs> I, I, going back to... The football one? Yeah, the football one, and I want to go back to the early days of football in which it was just people running at each other in the field, punching each other until one of them died. It was literally them throwing pigs at each other, just live pigs. Yeah. Um... Uh, Similar, and I, I, I would love that the same idea for uh, I want basketball one where the peach basket doesn't hasn't gotten the bottom removed and yet. And it's only played in Canada. It's oh yeah exactly. It's only played by Canadians. Um, no I one actually, above five foot four. I genuinely have always wanted EA Sports and, and Tiburon specifically because they have the most experience with every kind of sports game. I would really love it if they use that experience to make an original sport that could only work in the context of a video game. That would be really cool. I mean that's one of the things that a lot of. Uh, um, a lot of local developers have been working on like little small sports stuff. There's also been um, Action Ball mm-hmm. from uh, Tim Rogers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that looks pretty good. There's there's a lot of opportunity there to make like, game based sports. I think I think when you have if you have kind of EA's push behind you and you have the team that has been making sports for the last I don't know they they, they were bought by EA in 1998. So, so Infinity, you know, the last forever essentially. Yeah. The, the the team was made a minimum of 15 sports games at this point more. I really do think that there's there's so much opportunity for them to like, hey, if you come up with an original sport, you're so versed in these mechanics and these rules and these concepts, you can make a really cool original game. Or a Nazi could, zombie mode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or alternatively, they could make a Space Jam game because that would unbreak their basketball games. And <laughs> and they don't even have to fix the face scanning thing because everybody already looks like a monster. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> The thing is, though, uh, unfortunately, uh, Michael Jordan has his own licensing. You can't. He's not just. He's not part of the NBA package. You have to go to. Is Michael Jordan still alive? I don't know if he died. Yeah, yeah, he's still alive. Yeah. Okay, you have to go to Michael Jordan himself and give him the Urshu, <laughs> and um, only with that. In Are hand. we going to start talking about Barkley Shut Up and Jam again? Because <laughs> we do this all of the time. Yeah. Anyway, so Barkley Shut Up and Jam three coming out of EA Tiburon twenty sixteen. 20... I was thinking twenty. Yeah. Well, it's it's EA twenty eighteen. Yeah, twenty oh savage. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Hate you. That's it for news. Before we get into our interviews, I'd just like to say thanks to Daniel for the news this week. He puts a bunch of time into making the news as interesting and funny as possible, and the show literally would not be possible without him. You won't be hearing him during the interviews, though, because someone this week uh, was late with the script. Instead, you'll listen to me. I'm Armanek Bali, lead producer, and once again, let's flash back to 2013. To the moment when the rest of us became interested in virtual reality. Situ, what do you think? It's so real. And it's it's a picture in here, huh? Yeah. Oh, Lottie. That's pretty cool, right? It sure is. And you know what? Is it my eyes or are the leaves blowing in the They're blowing. You're right. You see it. Oh, man. So what you're hearing is a 90-year-old woman playing the original Tuscany demo with the Oculus headset. Now, originally, were these taken in Tuscany? No, that's all 3D. Somebody made that all on the computer. Oh, that's right, it's in 3D, too. It's all made on the computer. Oh, my. 
By 2013, a lot of tech people and game fans knew about the Rift. But here, regular folks took notice. It's a sign that a lot of people are going to like this. Right. I am not going to make you hit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man! S- Situ, can I thought you, t- you were going to put me through the window, not hit me against the post. Situ, can you, feel, can you reach out and touch the post? What's that again? Doesn't it feel like you can reach out and touch the post? You bet your bottom dollar you can. <laughs> and I can't get over the leaves moving. This is not about regular folks. This is about enthusiasts. Now, if you remember 30 minutes ago, Daniel and I mentioned we went to a VR meetup in Toronto. Well, we totally did that. On a day so rainy the cars created tidal waves out of puddles, we visited Veralt in downtown Toronto. We went to hear about Oculus Connect and talk to people working on virtual reality projects. So for the next 20 minutes or so, you'll be hearing from them. Starting with... It's been so far, so I can just get the levels right. Okay. Yeah, I've uh, just been playing Skyrim, actually, in the Rift this morning. <laughs> How is that? Uh, it's not Here's Stefan Tange. We had him on the show a couple weeks ago. He's a game designer, organizer, and generally tall guy who runs the almost monthly meetup here in Toronto. Well, actually, someone else uh, started this group, and I was really excited, so I, I joined right away, and um, they just never had a meetup, so the membership expired and i actually just picked it up and, and organized an event like fairly quickly and our members it's pretty good I've, I've managed to pass the 250 mark in terms of uh membership it's definitely like a growing community and there's always you know a lot of interest and it's 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 a really great opportunity because i kind of it's really a welcoming space both for curiosity seekers as well as you know people who are kind of coming from the gaming industry or, or interactive uh, you know kind of design industry um, so there's, there's makers and there's, you know, people who just want to kind of con- consume VR and there's people who want to see it for the first time. Like people will bring their work at the current progress that it's at. So you'll kind of see multiple iterations of, of people's projects as they go along. And then, um, those content creators get the ability to kind of get feedback on what they're working and, and how well things are working. And so there's a lot of, it's a really great opportunity for everyone to kind of collaborate. If I were to kind of just stumble in there, um, what would I see? What does the, the place look like where you end up meeting up? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been having it at a bar, uh, to be honest with you, uh, for most of the time. Um, I think we've got a couple of surprise locations coming up. But generally what you see is there'll be like a table or, or multiple tables with computers and Oculus Rifts, and there'll be a, a projector screen. And once we go into talk mode, all everyone stops demoing. Um, and then people share their experiences, either what they're making... Um, how they're making stuff, uh, different trade shows people have been to, different technology that's come out. How would you say that the Toronto community has kind of reacted to VR? That's oh, great. I mean, Toronto is a is a very multimedia, technology-friendly city, so I think um, so far it's been awesome. There's a lot of people in the, the game industry here that are really excited, and uh, I would say overall it's it's been, like, fantastic. It's, no one's got a negative reaction to the ref so far, so... So that's what this is all about, people who love virtual reality. And I mean, I could straight up not find anyone who is not beyond enthusiastic about the technology. Like Ian McNeil, these guys backed the original Kickstarter, they tried the Oculus Rift, most of them own it, and everyone's looking for a way to use it. The first man who caught my eye was Bernie. That's Bernie, B-E-R-N-I-E, last name Roll, R-O-E-H-L. Why Bernie? Well, he was the oldest adult in the room. Turns out he's been working virtual reality since at least the 90s, back when a lot of people thought it was a joke. It was very exciting, but very limited. We knew what we wanted to do, but the technology just wasn't there yet. So we were all kind of uh, frustrated. We said, this is what we want to do. We have this vision we have, and the technology is just not adequate yet. Computers were still too slow. Displays were still too heavy and bulky. um, And uh, it was just not happening. So we all said... Well, wait, technology will catch up, and it has. Those, right now, when we look at he- headsets, they're, they're not perfect, but they are a lot more elegant than they used to be. How, how was it like dealing with those kind of bulky uh, headsets back in the day? Uh, not only were they bulky, they were very heavy. You had to have, um, uh, quite often, they would use pulleys to take some of the weight off, so you'd be standing under this, this very large kind of uh, pulley system that takes the, the, the weight of the HMD for you. Uh, they had CRT displays. They didn't have LCD panels back then. So you had these small little television sets, 
basically, mounted to the front of like welders' helmets. And they got more sophisticated as time went on, but the really good ones were very expensive and were still not that great. They were um, very low frame rate, very high latency, very low resolution, and very front-heavy. So every time you turned your head, there was, you were pulling this weight, and it was very, very difficult and very unpleasant to use, but enough to give us a sense of here are some of the issues we need to solve, here's how we can address them in software. We've talked about this before on Built to Play. VR used to be super clunky. You'd be lucky to see one in an arcade. Forget anyone's home. In fact, we have a whole primer of silly VR technologies on the site if you want to see that. But Bernie was one guy who stuck to it. Well, I knew it would happen sooner or later because we knew that, that displays uh, being made for uh, mobile phones and for tablets were exactly the kind of thing you need for VR. And we'd known for a while the computers were getting fast enough, graphics cards fast enough. So we knew, those of us who were in it way back in the day, knew it was just a matter of time before someone did it. Uh, but uh, to see it all happen so quickly, I think, is what, what caught us by surprise. Because we thought, you know, someday it's going to happen. Oh, look, it has. I think most uses will be outside of games. I realize I'm on a gaming podcast, but uh, I think uh, everything from... Uh, architectural walkthroughs to social environments where people can meet up and just talk and hang out the way they do in the real world, uh, to uh, virtual online shopping experiences, to you name it. I mean, almost anything pleasurable you do in the real world, you would want to do in VR. What, what do you hope to see VR to be used for? Uh, I'm very interested in, in people and, and interacting with them and socializing with them. So to me, that social aspect is where it's really at. So you're thinking something like uh, a second life, but with VR. Yes, I was actually uh, one of the beta testers for Second Life 10 or 11 years ago. It's a great idea, but I think it needs updating. I know they're trying to kind of add on VR to the, the existing Second Life product, but I think uh, it would be much better for them to do a whole rewrite with uh, VR in mind from day one. Second Life had that streak for a while where people thought that it was going to be this next big thing. People had open embassies, businesses, open divisions in Second Life. But then it just suddenly disappeared. Um, do you think that a VR version of that would be more effective? That's interesting. It didn't, it didn't disappear. It's still out there. In fact, all the, the multi-user social virtual environments with a 3D component, of which there are literally two dozen of them, uh, Second Life is just the best known one, all of them are still in operation. Not one of them has disappeared, which shows that there is a, a real demand for that. People are drawn into that experience. Second Life. Man, do you remember Second Life? That was the virtual world where people hung out, occasionally cheated on their spouses, and Sweden had an embassy there. It was supposed to be the next big thing, and according to Bernie, it still could be. Which makes sense if you consider our next guest. Um, can you talk about that first experience? How did you first come across um, the Oculus Rift and VR, and uh, what about it made you want to develop for it? There was after the Kickstarter, and I really wanted it, but I was dead broke. And I'd made made enough money in Second Life to buy it, uh, I just went ahead and bought it. So one thing you just mentioned there is uh, you were making money in Second Life? What do you do in Second Life? I build assets and sell them on the marketplace. That broken old bookcase, uh, the speak and spell, the Wing Chun dummy. Um, I've got a, a mounted zombie head like a that you would hang over your mantle which is selling like crazy at Chris or at, at this time of year by the way um so yeah I just I made maybe I don't know 20 or so assets for second life and they just sit there on the marketplace and people buy them every day it's free money so that's Blair Renault designer of virtual reality game Technolust which is Technolust is a cyberpunk adventure game set in a dystopian sort of retro inspired future. Blair has had an incredible variety of jobs prior to working on Technolust. I used to be a technical director at, at Rockstar Games about 15 years ago now. Uh, back, in, back in old school land with like Grand Theft Auto 1. I actually worked on that. Then... Why did you drop out? Oh, because it sucked, man. It was brutal. <laughs> it was like 12 to 15 hour days, no weekends, like just crunch time year round. Like I slept there. I was making decent money, but I, what was I spending it on? Like booze to forget the day that just happened. Right? Um, so yeah, I started getting like really bad anxiety attacks and like it was just, it was too much. Um, so I was kind of like on my way to quitting and got fired. <laughs> but it was kind of like a purposely got fired, you know? It was just like I just stopped working. Um, 
And then I was a Flash web designer, and then Apple killed that. Thanks, Apple. Uh, and then I started doing VFX work, like After Effects, and uh, like doing corporate videos and uh, security, uh, which is a horrible idea. You're like a cop that doesn't get paid anything. It's the worst job you could ever have. <laughs> now the audio is going to get a little funky here because we did half of this interview on Skype. Sorry about that. What brought you back to game design after all that? VR, of course. <laughs> you know, like I, I needed to have that first developer's kit. Yeah, and I dove in. I was like, oh, shit, this is easy. And I was like, man, I could, I could make a game. So I, I dropped a couple demos. I did like uh, one called The Room, uh, and they were just kind of proof of concept stuff. And I, I released them and, and onto uh, just like the Oculus developer forums, and I got a lot of positive feedback. Um, I mean, like a lot, like like you know like 10,000 plus views pretty quickly. So I was like, okay, there's some, there's some interest here. And I just uh, dove back in. You, you mentioned that you were doing visual effects. What kind of other things were going on in your life at the time? My wife, uh, or, or not my wife, my fiance was pregnant. And despite knowing that you had a kid on the way and you, you worked at Rockstar, you've had that experience, you decided that you wanted to get back into games. Yeah, you know, like, like I was, I was still pretty safe. The the guy I was working for was was still paying me. It was just things were slow, and I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna work on this VR thing at the same time. And, uh, I put together a demo for Technolust and launched launched the Kickstarter in April, I think. That was basically just to cover my my salary for the year. Luckily, I got double what what I asked for. And Blair was one of the developers who made the trip down to Los Angeles for the Oculus Connect. It's a developers conference run by the creators of the Oculus Rift. The first day was a meetup at a downtown hotel, and on the next, lectures from the greatest minds in VR. Once you get to the, the 60 frames per second, you can have like the moving tours through things, you can have the helicopter rides, and they, they look really good. Or, to put it another way, uh, It's a big party. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like work hard, play hard kind of thing. Um, you big, uh, you know, big conference sessions with uh, with you know some of the top guys in VR, and then a big party after. That's the CEO of World, Ross McKegney. He was also in LA to learn more about VR, but he's not looking to make virtual reality products specifically. Like Bernie, he doesn't make games. Verald makes tools to build interactive 3D objects on the web, and VR could be one component of that. The, the big projects we had the very first interactive campaign on Kindle, uh, so. Amazon has a, a huge marketing platform, and you know their very first interactive campaign was delivered on Veral technology. It was a uh, a prototype for the Earth Echo, or sorry, a um, an interactive trailer for the Earth Echo movie that came out earlier this year, and uh, we got that done in a few weeks, and it was it was great. Got uh, got results and and user engagement beyond anything they've ever seen before. The main benefit of VR is is it, it's just more real. Uh, you have that sense of presence that you're there interacting with the content. Um, the, the really great analogy that you said at the Oculus Connect conference was it's kind of like watching a tiger on TV versus having a tiger let loose in your living room. Um, as real as that tiger is on your TV screen, it's still on your TV screen. Uh, when you put on the headset and you're in a space, the content seems more real. So examples of, of where uh, VR is being used for education today uh, Pearson, uh, Pearson Education, for example, is doing work with, with teaching kids about anti-bullying. And so they have an interactive experience that you can walk through and you can experience being, a, being bullied. Um, and just, you know, that, that message, that content is much more real and much more effective because you're kind of there and you're, you're in it versus just looking at it. He also wasn't totally on board with the idea of the Oculus Rift. Not at first, anyway. So you made it down to the Oculus Connect. What was that like for you? Well, it's it's like uh, a peek behind the curtains of what's going on at Oculus. Um, so it's great to be part of that that group and sort of just you know kind of what feels like seeing the future. Um, they were they prototyped the next generation Oculus headset and some really killer demos. I was not a hundred percent convinced on VR until I saw some of these demos, and now yeah, I absolutely believe this is the future of media. That device he's talking about is the Crescent Bay prototype, and it blew him away. Blair was pretty taken aback as well. The the screen was amazing, like ni- ninety hertz refresh rate, uh, at least like two K 
resolution. Um, and just consistent, like consistent 90 frames a second. It was like a religious experience, if I were religious. <laughs> How does it compare to the hardware you're currently working with? Uh, well, the D DK2 is pretty close. Um, you know, 75 frames. Uh, the resolution's a bit lower. So I, th I think like that. That's why they're not going to release another developer kit, right? Because DK2 is close enough when it works properly uh, and with the right content. And I think that was another huge. That was a huge part of what made it made it so so good was that there was you know AAA content and uh, the experiences were designed specifically for VR. That's the thing Blair kept thinking about in his flight back to Toronto. It felt light years ahead of a headset he'd used in 2013. If you were to compare the Oculus to, say, like, the ranges of televisions that have existed, mm -hmm. where would the DK1 lie, the DK2, and the Crescent Bay prototype, would you say? Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's easy. Just exactly where you'd think they'd lie. Like, DK1 is like, like an old black and white TV with rabbit ears, <laughs> right? I'm, which I'm, I'm sure the first black and white TVs blew people's minds when they came out. Uh, and then DK2 is, we're getting to like, um, yeah, I guess it would be like, just like a flat screen, maybe like a 32 inch flat screen. And then, uh, yeah, the, the Crescent Bay is like a 4k, you know, 60 inch screen. It's like the, the next level. Blair is a bit of a pessimist. He's not a hundred percent on board with this magnificent future of virtual reality. Not for the next five, ten years, anyway. Like I don't know. I don't. I don't think the world will change drastically, uh, except for what what content is put out there. You know, like there, there's a lot of beneficial stuff that can come from VR. Like I think the social aspect is going to be great. Just education and especially the cheapness of it. Like you look at you look at the spread of of cell phones through Africa. Um, and it's because of the, the low cost of the electronics, but like the internet and, and technology is like a, a really strong democratizing force. Like if you can just go on Wikipedia and find out the truth about things, that that changes people's lives uh, for the better, especially in you know rural and, and less, less educated populations. Yeah, it'll be a mixture of both. Some of the middle class and upper middle class will become less useful <laughs> but as a whole i think it, it's gonna be great for the world bernie roll is a programmer based out in kitchener he's working on a virtual reality project for the future hit him up at tspweekly.com it's a podcast about tech startups meanwhile Blair renault is a game designer based in toronto we'll have a link to techno lust on our site ross mckegney is the ceo overall find him at world.com next week we come down from this vr high that's all for this week i'm producer armin bali and i'm features editor daniel rose built to play was made with the help of e mcneil stefan tongay bernie roll dross mckegney and blair renault for extended versions of the interviews you just heard check out our website built to play.ca we're available on Stitcher radio and itunes leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show we're usually in the air at the Scope of Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. And remember, this month in our site is all about virtual reality. Daniel already has a primer up on the site this week where he, ha he has opinions on the holodeck and the future of VR gaming. We actually have his whole hub to find our VR-related projects that we'll link to. Follow us on Twitter, at Built2Play. And me personally, at Flarcon. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And Colin Laney is my husband, though. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and I welcome anyone out there who is curious, interested, um, wants to check it out, is even interested, like you know, is interested in getting involved in game design, virtuality design, all that kind of stuff, uh, interactive design. Come on down to the meetup because we'd love to have you there and, and show you some cool stuff, and you know, maybe it'll inspire you to do something, uh, something really interesting. Uh,